pray, ladies. Um, Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. Um, and we confess, um, Lord, that we understand it so little. We confess that our hearts are hard and our minds are confused. And so we ask now, um, as our ladies, um, many of us here, your children, we ask that you would help us. Um, Lord, if you don't help us now, we will understand nothing. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work among us, that it would, you would banish um, all coldness from our hearts, um, any confusion in our minds, and that, that we might um, experience um, your loving kindness, that we might understand what you've said and apply it rightly in the many different situations that we have in this room full of ladies. Um, Lord, we let us experience your love as you've said it in this book. Um, may your name, your name may be glorified. Um, Lord Jesus, amen. Okay, well I feel like um, we need to do this every time. We need to get our bearings because, because of the time since we last met. And one of the ways to read the song is to see how the poem leads us through a number of different kinds of love or different seasons of love, you might say. So, um, in the beginning, remember, way back in the beginning, we had kind of first love, passionate love. Um, in the beginning, there's no one else for you, no one else for me, all the love talk. And that leads to physical love. Then in the last um, couple of times together, we've seen slightly fickle love. Um, love, the love relationship being a little bit rocky. And now as we come to the final chapters um, in the poem, um, we see a kind of a more settled love um, between the bride and the groom. Um, because last time, remember, um, the bride, um, she didn't quite have her priorities in the right order and she took the king for granted. And we had, it was a sort of season, we've had that a couple of times, um, and it was a season of sort of fickle, faltering love. Um, but praise God, he is a restoring God. Um, and we're going to see in these last three chapters in the book a season of it's a more mature, um, settled love. Um, some of us will know that. Um, because relationships are never static, are they? They're always moving. Our relationships with one another, our relationships with our husband, those of us who are married here, um, with our children and of course our relationship with the Lord Jesus um, the relationship is never standing still um, either, either our relationships are drifting apart or going backwards you might say or they're moving forward and getting stronger relationships are like, like living things if you like 
And um, so last time, remember, we saw um, the bridegroom coming home very late at night and he catches the bride quite off guard and her initial reaction, it's not good, was it? No, she's lazy, she won't get out of bed, her priorities are upside down and she takes the lover for granted and that puts the relationship at risk. I mean, that's an easy application, isn't it? When we take others for granted, we put the relationship at risk, the whole relationship. But fortunately in the song, the bride, she realizes her mistake, she comes to her senses and she opens the door, oh, but too late, the beloved is gone. So whose responsibility is it then to make things right? Well, it's hers, isn't it? Right, when we mess up, it's ours, isn't it? Um, And of course, the Bible speaks into that. The Bible tells us how to do it. It tells us how. The God of the Bible tells us how to make things right, even here in Song of Songs. And so in the poem, in the chapter 5 last time, we saw the bride, she gets up, and she goes in search search of the king in the city, Um, By the way, that's kind of proof, it's evidence that she is his, that she does belong to him. She's going to do what what it takes to put things right. And she searches through the city throughout the night. But unlike the time before, which was some time ago in chapter 3, she doesn't find the king this time and she finds the watchman instead. And they give her a bit of a hard time. And they discipline her for her bad attitude, primarily for her rejection of the king. Okay, and you can make that application for yourself. So if I can just go down a side road about discipline for a second. It is evidence that we belong to the king when we're disciplined. Remember, we looked at... um, these verses in Hebrews 12 which say my son do not make light of the Lord's discipline my son we can say my daughter there do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son daughter So when we come under the hand of God in discipline for our bad attitude, our rejection of him, our coldness of heart and so on, it is a sign of his gracious love for us. We tend to think everything's gone wrong, God's cross with us, um, he doesn't love us and that's not so. Um, The Bible tells us that in disciplining us, God is treating us as his children um, and he is a good, good father and it's for our good that he does that. It's not random punishment. Um, It has a loving purpose. Okay, off the side road, back onto the song. So our bride in the song, she's disciplined by the watchman and it works. That's what discipline is supposed to do. It brings us to our senses if it works. And she realizes that rejecting the king um, was a mistake. 
And the final verses of chapter 5 are taken up with her um, telling her friends how, remember this, how her beloved is better than any other beloved. That's kind of a way of describing repentance, isn't it? That when we've messed up and we come to our senses and we want to seek out the king again and we want to make things right. It's kind of, it's a willingness to get our priorities in the right order again, to come to our senses, like the prodigal son does in Luke 15. He comes to his senses and he returns to the Father. And that's what we have here in the song. It's a very similar pattern. It's a pattern we know in our own lives. And in the drama that the song is presenting... She's rejected the king, she's been disciplined, she changes her mind, realises her mistake and, and goes looking for him to make things right. That's a pattern. Those of us who are Christians here, we know that. And, and in our own relationships, so that's everyone here, we know that. That's a pattern we all can relate to so now at the start of chapter 6 well she hasn't found him but the king's love of course is causing her to seek him that's the point the the, the king's love the love of the king for her that's bringing about her change of attitude that's that's drawing her to himself it's bringing about her repentance and by the end of this chapter you'll see that his love for her means she finds him and he's waiting for her to sweep him up into his arms and so after that rather lengthy introduction this chapter breaks down into three nice little sections it's a nice sequence we know it well the bride repents the king reassures the bride is restored the bride repents the king reassures the bride is restored so firstly um, the bride repents that's the first three verses And these verses see the bride and the friends talking again. Um, Well, what or who are they talking about? That's pretty obvious. Where has your beloved gone? Most beloved of, most beautiful of women. Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? Well, yes, of course they are. They're talking about the king. Remember back in chapter 5, the bride asked the friends if they come across him to tell her where he is so that she can find him. And it seems they didn't find him either because now they're asking her where he is and they want to help her look for him. So that's quite cool, isn't it? In chapter 5, our bride is speaking about how her beloved is better than all the other beloveds out there. She's talking about the beauty and the majesty and the love of God in Christ. And what happens? 
well, that has an effect on the friends and they want to find the beloved for themselves. And what's that called, ladies? That's called witness. Yeah, it's called witness, isn't it? When we tell others about the Lord Jesus, when we tell our friends, our family, our work colleagues, this is who he is. This is his value. This is what he's done for me. This is why he is better than, than any other beloved out there. When we speak to others about the value of the Lord Jesus Christ, not all of them, but some of them will want to find him for themselves. I hope that's been your experience. I know it's not easy. But I need to ask you this. When was the last time that you did that? The friends, the friends in your own life, in your home, at the workplace, at the gym or the golf club or wherever it is. And interestingly, although there's no evidence at this stage that her fellowship with the king is restored, she seems to know where he is. So she says in verses 2 and 3, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Well, he's gone to ground. He's, he's gone to the garden shed, if you like. No, I jest. Do I jest? Do you find that interesting? I do. I do. Why does Solomon, the author of this book, tell us this? That even though they're not back together, she knows where he is. The fellowship is broken, but she knows where he is. And what does, the, what does Solomon mean by the king's gone down to his garden? Okay, well, there's masses in this, of course there is. For the sake of time, I'm going to suggest that the king's garden is a real place. And she knows where he is because she knows him. She knows how to find him, to be in his presence. It's grace, ladies. It's the king, his words, his character. All these things together means she wants to be with him again. She wants fellowship restored and she knows how to seek him. And I think the implications for us as Christians um, this morning, they're clear, aren't they? They're clear for us as Christian wives, certainly, and they are clear for us as Christians. Okay, the king made known his desire for greater intimacy with the bride. Read that on two levels. There's a human story there and there's a heavenly story and she did not share in those desires. Read that both ways as well. And his response to her refusal, to her rejection, 
it's loving and it's gracious. He even leaves this blessing of myrrh on the door handle, last chapter, and he leaves quietly. There's no unkindness, there's no huff, no words even. He just withdraws quietly, leaving this blessing behind. You can work that out for yourself. And the bride realises that the king has gone down to his garden refuge. She knows where he is. And this garden is not full of weeds. It's full of spices. It's full of lilies. Imagine the smell. Lilies are actually my favourite flowers. Um, and, and this is a good time of year, isn't it? Because they like cold weather. But the smell is intoxicating and overpowering. And they are so beautiful. I always think when I look at a lily, such an evangelistic tool, how could a lily ever have been made by accident? So it's a royal garden, ladies. And in grace, the bride's heart has changed now. She says, I'm my beloved, and my beloved is mine. She's no longer lazy, no longer cold-hearted, reluctant. Her desire is to be restored with the king, to be with him, to be in his presence, and she declares herself his. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And this is so true to life, isn't it? Scripture is so timelessly relevant it's as relevant today as it was in any day in human history. This is no kind of Hollywood movie scene, airbrushed, fake, sentimental, violins, no music in the background to work on our emotions. This is, this is the Bible speaking about real life, real people with real difficulties in the relationship and it says this is what this is how it's supposed to be when love prevails love's the greatest love keeps no record of wrongs um, faith open love the greatest of these is love you, you, you know these verses well. So, the, the Lord here, it, through Song of Songs, is showing us in, a dra in the drama of the human people that it's... Okay, that the king is a type of Christ because he never does anything wrong. But the bride, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are the bride of Christ. And the bride of Christ, until we get to glory, she is fickle. And she blows hot and cold. Despite being married to a perfect king. And this word is saying, love wins out. These people have real relationship difficulties. And this is the way out. 
So if this is you today, don't give up. This is the way to be the kind of wife, fiancé, girlfriend um, that honours the Lord. It's not to read technical books about how to do it or go for psychotherapy. It's actually, whatever your context is, it's, it's pursue the king. It's pursue Christ-likeness. Invest in your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Whether the relationship is in difficulty, is with a husband, fiancé, boyfriend, father, mother, son, daughter, with a girlfriend, someone at the office, a colleague at work, with an old, older person in the church, with a young disciple in Christ, even the pastor or the pastor's wife, but especially if the difficulty is in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The way, to, um, the way through it is pursue Jesus. Invest in that relationship. That's the answer. How can I say that? Well, we move on to the second section where the king reassures the bride. Now, this section shows the bride reflecting on the king's words. And your translation probably says that the king is speaking. I know that mine does. But that doesn't really make sense. The bride only goes to the garden to seek the king later in the chapter. At this stage, she's still, the fellowship is still broken. And it makes um because the who's speaking has been put in later by translators it's not holy scripture and and who's speaking depends you have they have to make sense of of the poem to put the who's speaking in if you're with me and it doesn't really make sense to say that the king is speaking here because fellowship is not restored it makes better sense to think that this is the bride thinking over in her mind all the things that the king has said to her and actually especially the bit about the teeth and the coming up from the washing we've had all that before it's almost exactly the same so in her mind she's reflecting on the king's words So what do we do when we're in trouble in our relationship with the Lord Jesus, especially if that's in a time of discipline or our heart has gone like the bride's did, it's lazy, the priorities are wrong. I, I just want greater fellowship, but oh gosh, you know what, I'll just do it tomorrow, next week, next month. He's cross with me. He won't receive me. He, he, he doesn't love me. He's forgotten about me. How can he let these hard things happen to me? Okay. Well, we reflect on the king's words, on what he's already said. 
And what is it about the king's words that reassure her in this section? Well, you see, she's still in that slightly uncomfortable space where she knows she's messed up. She wants to be restored, but it hasn't quite happened yet. Any ever, anybody ever been there, or am I just talking to myself? No, we've all been there, and it's, it's um, sadly, it's more often than we would like to think. And the king says to her in verse 4, You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling. You're as lovely as Jerusalem. Well, Terza was the capital city of the northern kingdom after Israel divided. And it was literally a beautiful city. That's why he's saying Terza. The Hebrew word Terza actually means beautiful. So they called a city beautiful. Actually, they could call, I'm thinking of another city, they could call beautiful. But, but, but Hebrew, the word Akterza actually means beautiful. And she's as lovely as Jerusalem. So she's like the most significant cities in the North Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. It's significance as well as beauty. Because these cities would have been very important to the king. And so again, we've seen this before, he's expressing his admiration for her, for her beauty in terms of things which are important to him. He's saying, you are beautiful like I see Terza, like, and significant. Was Jerusalem significant? Well, you're like Jerusalem. You're so significant to me. And then she's likened to um, this army with banners. That's, again, a a significance idea. Um, He speaks of his love for her, again, like the Garden of Eden. It's, It's a garden. The thing about the twins, it's, Not one of them is missing. There's no infertility in this garden. It's teeming with life. It's lush. It's beautiful. It's green. And it's almost exactly a repeat of what the king said to the bride in chapter 4. So it seems like she's meditating on the words the king has already said. Except for this little phrase, this one he hasn't said before, in verse 5, where he says, Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Now, what's that about? Think about this for a minute. You know what it's like when you've hurt someone close to you, or they've hurt you, and you can't look at them in the eye, can you? It's uncomfortable. It's painful, actually. And we have to look away. And that's what's going on here between the two lovers. They're not not together again. And he's saying, I can't hold your gaze because things are not right between us. I love you too much. You know how it is, I think. So then we come to verses 8 and 9 where the king says 60 queens there may be and 80 concubines 
and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favourite of the one who bore her, the young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines praised her. Well, what on earth is going on here? Is King Solomon seriously saying that he prefers the bride from all the other women he had at his disposal? Think historical King Solomon. Is he seriously saying that she is his favourite in a harem? Because the historical Solomon had many wives and a large harem. Try thinking of this as Solomon, the writer of Song of Songs. And what he's doing here is depicting an ideal version of himself. So not as a king with a large harem, but as a type of Christ. And if you can, you might get something like this for these verses. You know, my darling, you and I have been around many other kings. I could count at least 60, and they were all married. So that means you've been around at least 60 queens of one sort or another. And together we've met many other different women from over the world and walks of life and including 80 concubines. You've been around many beautiful women, plus countless unmarried virgins. But as far as I'm concerned, you're the only woman in the world. So the bride is not his favourite in a large harem. There's no harem in the song. The king is saying that the bride is the only one he loves. She is uniquely and monogamously his. And as she thinks on these things, on what he's saying to her, that's when she goes down to the garden to find the king. It's like, okay, okay. I'm going, I'm going to do this now. Okay, now, I'm going, now. It's, it's the love of the king. She can't refuse. So she goes down to the garden to find the king and they get back together. You see the pattern, the bride repents. The king reassures. And now the bride is restored. Verse 11. Can we all see verse 11? She says, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom. In response to his words, the word he has said, the bride sets out to seek the king where she knows he will be. But you see, she's still an if in there. She's still not quite sure how she'll be received. She says, to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates in bloom. I mean, is it going to be all right? She's not quite sure what she's going to find when she gets there. 
is it is it the right time she's thinking to approach the king but verse 12 suggests things go better than she ever anticipated she says before I realised it my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people so to her surprise and her delight he's waiting for her because he knows she's going to come round eventually he's waiting for her she's messed up but he's waiting for her before I realised it my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people she's basically swept up into the royal chariot she's in the king's arms so picture it this way ladies we mess up and the king of the universe is waiting when we finally get round to I'm sorry Lord Jesus he's like it's okay my darling my bride I was waiting for you I'm so glad that you're back he doesn't give us a hard time he doesn't shame us he doesn't finger wag it's just I'm so glad that you're back and everything is hunky-dory again between the two lovers the vines have budded the pomegranates are in bloom this is a sexy book you can work out what that means for yourselves and the implications for us as Christian women are pretty obvious too but the more important point I think is have you ever blown it? blown it and thought that maybe there was no way back no way of making things right I've done that a few times in my life when I thought that the damage that I'd done was too severe to be mended things that I've done um, that I thought were going to cost me a relationship or a friendship things that cost me the respect that, that I thought I wanted that I could never regain am I the only one? no, of course not if you're a Christian today, I expect you've also experienced um, the truth of Proverbs 28:13. This is a lovely word. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So if you're a Christian here this morning and you've made a big mess of things, I'm going to guess at something and my guess is that when you finally got around to realising your mistake finally been humble enough to confess to confess our sin we've repented of it then we've experienced God's mercy in a special way we have our sins separate us from God and when we renounce them 
we experience his gracious forgiveness in a deeper way than if we'd never sinned at all. Because his grace rests heaviest on those who feel themselves lowest. My favourite commentator um, on the song puts it this way. This is why we need a saviour who is stronger than all our sin. We need a covenant partner whose commitment is stronger than our waywardness. We need a lover whose devotion will not be destroyed by our ignorance and weakness. We need that grace that is greater than all our sin. We need that cross that conquers the curse, the life that death cannot undo, that hope will not disappoint, that love that will not let us go. We need our bridegroom. We need Jesus. And we need him to love us the way the king loves the bride in Song of Songs 6. Have you ever blown it like the bride in the song? Christian, you have never blown it beyond redemption. You've never blown it. You've never messed up so big or injured so cruelly or betrayed so easily that the grace of God in Jesus Christ will not restore you when you repent. When these things happen, which they do from time to time in the Christian life, reflect on the person and the work of Jesus. What he is like, all that he's done, he is the image of the invisible God, he is gracious and compassionate. He is our God and he does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities, rather as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his love for those who fear him. So don't give up, Christian, when you've blown it. Repent. Reflect on the love of God for you in the cross of Christ. His blood is sufficient. Be restored to him in his grace. In the poetry of the song, we have, a, we have a picture of human love and a fractured relationship and it's restored. But it's telling the bigger story as well. It's telling us the big story of the Bible. It's telling us about the amazing love of God for us in Christ, for those who've rejected him, who've messed up, we think beyond repair, but we are won over by his unfailing love. Those for whom he gave his own spotless life and for whom he will return one day and sweep us up in his chariots. That is the big story of the Bible in this little book. And that's why I've called it the best song ever. Let's pray, shall we?
Father in heaven, hallowed be your great and glorious name. Thank you for this wonderful chapter in this beautiful song. We thank you for giving up your son so that you could sing this song to us today. We are sorry for our rebellion and our sin, for our cold-heartedness, for our fickleness. Please help us to remember this word when we think we've blown it beyond repair. Lord, that we might repent and be restored to you and that we would know, we would experience your mercy and your forgiveness in a deeper way. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus and for his dear sake. Amen. Amen.